Thank you, Ben. And uh, thank you to all the rest of you who've been uh, filling in different things um, these last few weeks. It's been a great encouragement, a great help. Um, Evan, can you send me an email? I think I have an updated copy of that song so that we can, there's a few changes. So unfortunately, there's different copies of the words to songs, and uh, I try to double check them against the hymnal, but sometimes they don't match. So we'll get that taken care of. All right, with regard to the passage that we're looking at this morning, since it's been a little while, I just wanted to review some, some background for you. So this is the end of a section that really begins with chapter 13. Chapter 13, we have the Lord's Supper, and then we come to the comfort that Jesus offers to his disciples in chapter 14, the discussion of Jesus as the vine in chapter 15, and then the description of the coming of the Spirit then as well in chapter 16. Uh, here at sort of the culmination of Jesus' ministry on behalf of the disciples, prior to all the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus prays a prayer to God the Father, sometimes described as the high priestly prayer. Uh, there's been quite a bit written about this particular chapter in the book of John. There are a variety of ways in which people subdivide the text. One that I think was helpful when I was looking through some of the commentaries was looking for the, the, the places where he addresses God as Father throughout the passage. And so I'd encourage you to consider some of those things as well. But this morning what I want to do is have a little bit more of a simple uh, description of what's going on here in John 17. Jesus' final intercession here for his people on behalf of not only of the disciples who then believed and were following him, but also on those who would come after through the ministry that God was going to give them. And there are several key ideas in this passage, and I want to sum them up this way. God glorifies Jesus by protecting, sanctifying, and unifying his people. We begin with the idea that Jesus asked the Father to restore the Son's glory and to continue the Son's work. In chapter 17, verse 1, we are reminded that this is now the time. Earlier in the book of John, it's not the hour. His hour had not come. It was not the time. Why could they not seize Jesus? Why could they not stone him? Why could they not harm him before this point? Because the hour had not yet come. Now the hour has come. And Jesus' request to God the Father is to glorify the Son that he may glorify you. And sometimes people have overemphasized the idea that this passage is strictly about Jesus, and it's certainly focused on his ministry through prayer on behalf of his people. But I think we would uh, miss some of the point if we forget the important reality that for Jesus to be glorified means the Father is also glorified because God the Father and God the Son are one. And so when Jesus says, glorify me, this is not a selfish kind of thing. He's saying, God, may we be glorified. So the hour had come for Jesus to complete his work. He prays to the Father. And how does the Son specifically glorify the Father? The Son glorifies the Father because he has completed the work the Father gave him to do. The Father glorifies the Son by continuing that work and doing specific things among his disciples. And so there's these two sides of what's happening, both of them bringing glory to the triune God. 
So what does Jesus do? He says, The Father gave him authority over all flesh that he might give eternal life to those the Father had given to him. And so the Son's responsibility was those the Father gives to him. We saw this in John chapter 6. They will come to him. He will not turn them aside. He will receive them. He will give them eternal life. He will raise them up on the last day. He will not lose any of them. The passage clearly highlights the only one who's lost of all these entrusted to Jesus by God the Father is Judas Iscariot according to God's plan in fulfillment of prophecy, all of these things that we've already looked at. And so Jesus gives to those who are coming to follow him, to follow God, eternal life. Eternal life is something that I think we tend to think of primarily as being way off in the future. So I die, and then there's an afterlife. But Jesus doesn't emphasize that aspect of eternal life here. What does he say eternal life is in verse 3? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Is that something we have to wait until we die to experience? No, this is one of the present realities of having a relationship with God as our God, that we possess the eternal life of knowing him and belonging to him and believing in him right now. And so, I've, I've said this many times before, we should not think of the Christian life as being primarily focused on where you're going to end up when you die. It's not primarily about heaven. The Christian life is primarily about your relationship with the God who dwells in heaven and with whom you will dwell forever. And that's where I think we see this great intersection between the truths of the Old Testament and the truths of the New Testament. God calls out a people for himself. He wants them to be set apart for him. He wants to dwell among them and for them to dwell with him. We're going to see those exact same themes here. Exodus, John. God with his people, God's people with God. Set apart, sanctified. There's a lot of parallels, and these truths all come together in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So the question I would have for you, although this passage is not really a do passage, what I mean by that is some passages are uh, stop hating your brother, start loving your brother. That's an active thing that we're involved in. This passage is not so much do something. This passage is believe something, know something, understand something. But one of the things that we have to understand is what is eternal life? And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, do I have that eternal life? Not am I thinking of my relationship with God as I pray a prayer, nothing much happens, 50 years later I die, and now I'm in heaven. Or do I think of eternal life as an ongoing, increasing, growing relationship with the God who has both saved me and given me that opportunity now, and who will fulfill all the promises connected with it when I die. And that second view is, I think, the biblical view. We see it, for example, in the book of Ephesians. Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have a promise of being with God so certain that he can speak of it in the past tense, even though our present experience is we're still here on earth. And so, when you think of the Christian life, it's not one point pray a prayer, make a decision, walk an aisle, whatever, have a great experience that then doesn't affect the rest of your life. It is a starting point of a process that continues throughout your life and continues past the end of this earthly life that you may dwell with God forever. So do you have that kind of life? 
I'm not saying it's bad if you have written in your Bible a day and a time when you prayed a prayer, when you first started trust in Jesus. But that is not the primary focus of this passage. The primary focus of this passage is, do you have an ongoing relationship with Jesus? Those are the ones for whom Jesus is praying. Those are the ones in whom God the Father will work. Those are the ones who are going to carry on Jesus' work. Verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth because he accomplished this work. The ones that God gave to him, he has given to them eternal life. They know him, they follow him, they are his disciples. We saw examples of this in the context of the the washing of feet. You are clean by the word that I have spoken to you. They were his disciples and they knew him and they were following after him. Imperfect knowledge? Absolutely. When he says, I'm the way to God the Father, they say, all right, show us the way. And, you know, statements like this. They didn't get all of it yet, but they did know Jesus. So the hour had come for Jesus to finish his work Jesus' work is to reveal himself and promote belief among his followers. Verse 6 describes this for us. I manifested your name to them. When he says manifested your name, this is a figure of speech that basically says he has made God known to them. He's not just said, hey, there's a God in heaven, and that's it. That's not where it stopped. It's Jesus reveals everything of who God is to these people who have come to follow him. And that's the way in which he's manifested his name to them. And then the result of that is that they have kept your word. They have learned truth about God. They have begun to actually follow him. Jesus had made known to them all of the words that God gave to him. Verse 8, the words you gave me, I gave to them. And now they understand that they have come from you. One of the biggest challenges and obstacles for the Israelites when Jesus came was finally understanding this connection between God the Father and God the Son. It's highlighted by a phrase like when Jesus said in a previous chapter, you believe in God, believe also in me. For them, they believed in God the Father. But to say that Jesus is God, that they need to believe in him, that he's the way to reach God the Father, that was something profound and and difficult for them to accept and to understand. But Jesus made this clear to them. The Son is praying for those who are yet in the world. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, on the behalf of the disciples, the ones God gave to him, the ones that followed him, not on behalf of the world. So Jesus is not praying for the world at this point. He's praying for his followers. And he is leaving the world. Verses 11 and 12, I am no longer in the world. Now again, he has not yet left the world, but it's so close It's about to happen. He's speaking of it in the past tense. I am no longer in the world. But they're here, and I go to you, so keep them in your name. Protect them. Give them unity in verses 11 and 12. This is how Jesus' work is continued and fulfilled even after he leaves and returns back to heaven. We look at the Gospels, and then we sometimes we look at Acts of the Apostles. That's how we often think of it. But the reality is, they are one and the same work. The Acts of the Apostles is the continuation of the work of Jesus after he ascends to heaven. They're not two different things. They are a continuation of the same thing, which is what God is accomplishing in the world through the ministry of Jesus among his people. So Jesus asked the Father to restore the Son's glory 
glory when he was with God the Father, that he veiled for a time when he lived as a, a man on earth, now restored when he returns and ascends to heaven. He asked the Father to restore the Son's glory and continue the Son's work. Jesus has nearly completed his work. He's, he prays for the Father to glorify and be glorified, that his work will continue. And then in the next section, he expands on these themes of keeping and guarding, of making them one, of sanctifying them. So the next thing we see is the next section here, verses 13 to 21. Jesus asked the Father to keep, sanctify, and unify his people. First of all, to keep the disciples, to guard them, to protect them, depending on what translation you have. Jesus had spoken God's word to them so that they might have joy. He gave them the word, verse 14, and the result was that the world hated them. Why did the world hate them? Because the world rejected Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. So anything that happened to Jesus was going to happen to a greater or lesser extent to his disciples. We might then expect Jesus to pray, all right, life's going to be hard for them. Give them a break. But notice what he says next. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. When it says the evil one, the word one is probably in italics in your Bible, but this should be understood as a reference to Satan, the one who opposes God. Jesus' concern is not that they would have an easy life, but that their faith would remain despite Satan's temptations. And so when he prays to God, it's not make it so they never have any trouble in this life. It is that through the trouble, their faith will endure and they will continue to follow after me. He also prays and recognizes that in verse 16, the reason they're not of the world, the reason they're facing this opposition is because he's not of the world, they are his followers, and, and sort of repeating that idea from verse 14. This idea of sanctifying is sort of uh, tucked in between keeping, guarding, protecting, and then um, uh, the idea of unifying them. And there's a couple of interesting things I want to note about this. First of all, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That word sanctify, sometimes I think people have simplistically looked at it as make holy. And that is often the sense in which it's used. But in this case, there is as much an idea, I think, of consecration or setting apart as there is of purging of sin. Now, are the two things connected? Absolutely, because for them to serve God well, they can't be full of sin and going their own way. But here, it's more this idea of even as Jesus was set apart for his ministry, he's praying for the Father to set them apart and strengthen them in their ministry. It's a commission. It's a passing of the torch. It's a, it's a preparing them for what they're about to do in the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There are echoes and overtones of Psalm 119 in that second phrase, your word is truth. I would encourage you to explore those. Uh, but what is it that he's doing? Why do I say that this is more of a consecration than it is a cleansing? Because verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. They're connected. They're closely related. But here it is. They've been set apart for a particular ministry. And that, I think, helps us to understand then verse 19, because if we understand that word sanctify only as make holy, then verse 19 would be, for their sakes I make myself holy, that they may be made holy in truth. 
And Jesus doesn't need to be made holy. He's already perfect. But what Jesus is saying is, I have been set apart and dedicated to the work of ministry, which is going to reach its fulfillment in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Their ministry is going to begin shortly after that, even as I've been a set apart for this ministry to die, to be raised, and all of these things that follow, they are being set apart for their ministry to serve me, to proclaim the gospel, to die, to be raised, to be with me. He asked the Father to unify them. Verse 20, I don't ask on the behalf of these alone, but also those who believe me through their word, that they may all be one. And so this was a concern in the early church, whether there would be unity among God's people, particularly among groups like Jews and Samaritans, or Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles. But the emphasis here is not primarily on unity because they're all from the same ethnic background, which is where a lot of people try to put the idea of unity today. It's not we're all alike, so we're all one. What united them was what Paul talks about, for example, in Corinthians, where he says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's one thing we're believing in, one person in whom we're trusting, one message of salvation. That's what unified them. And the nature of their unity was that just as Jesus and God the Father are one, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one, that Jesus and his people are one, and that his people are one with one another. And I'm saying the word one a lot. I know that you missed the importance of what's going on here. There is a unique connection between Jesus and his people, between Jesus' people among themselves, and between Jesus' people and God. And so this is not something that we have to artificially create. It just is. But it is a profound and supernatural work of God to maintain it. If you, as we see in the book of Corinthians, are baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit, not so much what happens here in the baptismal, that's a picture of that spiritual reality, but if you've experienced that spiritual reality that you have made, made a part of God's church, then it is true that you are one with God's people. You are one with Jesus. You are one with God. And yet there's also a real sense in which we have to work at that, isn't there? Because there are many things that can come in and disrupt that unity. Whether it be sins like gossip, whether it be just general selfishness, whether it be a lack of awareness that these things are true, there are things that interfere with the unity that is a reality among God's people. And so as God the Father makes us more aware of the truth of our salvation, as we work to fight against the things that would divide us, whether that be heresy or sinfulness or just generally being selfish people, God's, it, God is answering Jesus' prayer in what he is doing in the church. But this doesn't stop there. It's not just we all get along and that's it. Notice the last phrase of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So what connection is there between the idea of God protecting the faith of his people, setting them apart from ministry, um, unifying them, how does that then convince the world that God sent Jesus? Jesus' ministry is to give eternal life and to reveal God the Father. If there are people who have received that eternal life and who know God the Father and then who are one with one another in a way that is surprising to the world, well, that goes back to what we saw in the previous chapter. By this they'll know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Love for God, connected with love for one another, is a mark of discipleship that the world can see and is a proof that God sent Jesus, his message is true, and that all the things that God said have come to pass. Having almost fulfilled his work, we now see the last few verses here of chapter 17. The son asks the father to restore his glory. So he returns to what he was saying in the first part of it, but he, he picks up on this theme of love and relationship even more. He prays knowing that he's going to leave soon, that the disciples will be kept by the father, unified with the father and son, that the son's work will continue. What's the result of all of that? Jesus asked the father to show his love by bringing the disciples to be with him. We see this. Um, starting in uh, here toward the end of the passage. Verse 22. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Jesus shared the Father's glory with the disciples to produce, promote unity among them. Jesus wants that unity to be perfected. Verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So, in what way did Jesus share his glory? Well, we know all the things about when we are with him in eternity that as part of his kingdom we reap the benefits of being associated with him. But I don't think that's primarily, that, that's looking more toward the future. Jesus is saying this is something that I have done. So how has he shared his glory with the disciples? He's made God known to them. He shared God's words with them. He has pointed them the truth of who God is. He has, even in specific instances, to some of them revealed his glory, like in the case of the transfiguration. And so, they have experienced these things, and these things are supposed to produce unity in them, then being perfected in that unity, because they know Jesus, they've seen God's glory revealed in him, that's going to lead to them living in such a way that the world is convinced, not only... Do they know God and are they one with him, but that they have experienced God's love and that they love God themselves? We see that in verse 23. What's the fulfillment of that? Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. The love of Jesus for his people is then... Uh, turn into a prayer request to God the Father that Jesus' people would be with him forever, experiencing the fullness of his glory to the extent that humans can experience and observe it. And that is a further testimony, not only of Jesus' love for his people, but of the Father's love for the Son. In other words, just to make it really simple, God loved Jesus, Jesus loved the disciples. When Jesus says, bring the disciples to be with me, it shows God the Father's love for them, and it shows Jesus' love for them. And that's a testimony to the world of God's love for his people. Really quick aside, when we think of God's love for the world, I think it's easy for us to think of it in fuzzy, sentimental kinds of ways. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and we take that as though, sometimes we emphasize the word so. For God so loved the world, the word so is just simply there to say, in this way, here's how God loved the world. He sent his son. And there's two categories of responses to that. The one who believes in the son has life. The one who does not believe the son does not have life. Which group is he talking about here? The ones who believe in the son and know the son 
experience and possess God's love. The ones who don't, God shows compassion on, God shows kindness on, God gives many blessings to, but ultimately their end is destruction unless they turn. If you don't have the eternal life that verse 3 talks about, Jesus' prayer is not directed for you. You will not experience the love of God. You do not have the love of God. You need to know Jesus in order to be the recipient of this prayer that Jesus has has brought before God the Father. If you want to see the love that God had for Jesus before the foundation of the world, the only people who are going to really and truly see that are those whom, as Ephesians 1 says, God chose before the foundation of the world that they would be uh, holy, experiencing God's love on them. And you say, well, how can I pick God if he didn't pick me? That's not the part that we're supposed to focus on. Sometimes we get really hung up on God's sovereignty at this point. Here's what I think a passage like this would urge us to consider. If you hear the gospel message, here's who Jesus is. Jesus is the way to God. No other way. Not by being a good person, not by following some other religion, not by just, you know, trying really, really hard You can't get to God that way, only through Jesus. So what does the book of John call us to do? Believe that you may have life. This specific passage is not emphasizing that. It's describing the end result for those who have believed and who have life. But if you want to experience the blessings that this passage talks about, you have to first know God and belong to him. And Jesus is the only way to be belonging to God. This idea is brought up again in verse 25 and 26. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you. Well, that picks up on themes at the very beginning of the book of John. Jesus came into the world. The world rejected him. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. He reveals himself. He comes into the world. He brings God's light. He brings God's truth. And the response of so many was to reject him. Yet I have known you, verse 25, Jesus knows the Father, and these, the disciples, have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus' prayer to God the Father is this, Glorify me, and in so doing, glorify yourself, because I have done the work you sent me to do. I have made you known to them, I have given them eternal life in response to their belief, I want you, as I leave this world and it transitions to being their responsibility to fulfill ministry in my behalf, in the previous chapter he says, send the Spirit as the Comforter and the Helper. In this chapter he says, God the Father, you protect them from the temptations and the schemes of the devil. You sanctify them, set them apart for this ministry, which means holiness, but it also means that they're dedicated to that work You unify them, make them one because you and I are one and I am one with them and they are one with one another through the work that you're doing. Along the way, the world that's watching will catch glimpses of what's happening here and they will see the true love that exists between God and His people and they'll say, that's a true disciple of Christ. Such that some of those who are not yet believing in Jesus are those who verse 20 refers to 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. You say, I don't, I don't get all of this. I don't, um, I don't see what this has to do with me. While there is life, there is hope. While you still draw breath, there is opportunity for you to say, you know what? I've been going my own way. I've been rejecting Jesus, and I've been in the category of those who are condemned. But now I turn from that and I turn to Jesus. I want the eternal life that he's talking about here. I want to be the recipient of all these blessings that he was praying for his followers here. I would urge you to turn to him today. And if you have turned to him and you are a recipient of all these blessings that God the Father grants to his people because of the prayer of Jesus, then what's our proper response to a passage like this? It's not... Try to be more unified with one another, really. That's not the main emphasis here. There's other passages that talk about that. It's not try to be more set apart. It is, I think, primarily rejoice in the blessings that God has granted to you because of what Jesus has done. I think that's the main thing that we as followers of God should take away from this passage. Rejoice at the amazing work that God has done. Think about all the opportunities that, that where it could have gone wrong. If Jesus said, yeah, I don't want to be a carpenter. If Jesus had said, yeah, going and dying on a cross, that's really hard. I don't want to do that. The Father would not be restoring the Son to glory because the Son would not have been obedient to the Father. But because Jesus is moving willingly and obediently and humbly to the cross, the Father will hear his prayer, the Father will exalt him to his former glory in heaven, and we reap all the benefits of the suffering servant son who ministered faithfully, following after God. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, we see sort of the drawing together of all the themes of what Jesus is and what he's doing. Faithful servant, revealing God to man, giving eternal life, praying for God to continue his work once he goes back to heaven, and then that leads into all of the rest of the New Testament. And so, as much as this is a good thing to look at by itself, see in it a fulfillment of God's plan that he's been working out through the ages. A people set apart for himself, with whom he dwells, proclaiming his name to those around him, those whom he loves and possesses and gives life to and will have with him for all of eternity. God glorifies Jesus by protecting his people, sanctifying and unifying them, in response to Jesus' faithful and obedient service and in response to the specific things he asked God the Father in this passage. Let's pray. Dear Lord, there's a lot of truth in this passage, and I'm sure there's things I didn't explain as clearly as I would have liked. But I pray that the main themes would be clear. I pray that we would marvel at the work that you are accomplishing among your people, and if we cannot lay claim to being one of your people in the way that this passage talks about, I pray that we would begin to follow you and know you and trust you today. If we do know you, 
then I pray that this passage would give us hope and confidence as we grow in our relationship with you, that we might be a testimony to one another and to the world around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.